episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Crystal. I'm Matt. I'm Alex. And I'm Vera. We are doing our very first Zoom podcast recording uh, this evening, everyone. We are on chapter six of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Gilderoy Lockhart. Before we begin, though, Uh, We want to just acknowledge what many of our listeners may be thinking. It has been quite a while. Uh, We have probably gone a year and a half to two years without recording uh, a fresh podcast. Uh, We have missed getting together and talking about our favorite book series. Uh, We have heard the comments from you all (laughs) asking us to get back to work. Uh, We also want to recognize that, uh, as many of you have said in the comments, a lot of our previous episodes have not been available through your podcast platforms. Uh, As we've said in past episodes, that's because we were trying to work uh, with a prior podcast host and coming into a a lot of obstacles and hurdles with that. We have uh, moved on from that podcast hosting platform. We're getting a new one, and we hope that all of our previous episodes will be available to stream on your preferred podcast platform. And we hope to get back in the rhythm of working through the Harry Potter canon with you, our dear listeners. Remember, you can get in touch with us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HPBC Podcast. Friends, it's been two years. COVID's been hard. We've had a lot of babies in the past (laughs) two years. Our families have expanded and our love for Harry Potter has grown as well. How's that for a transition? Let's jump into chapter six, (laughs) Gilderoy Lockhart. We're at breakfast in the Great Hall. Uh, We have just finished the Whomping Willow episode. And one of the first details we get is that there was a slight stiffness in the way Hermione said morning, which told Harry that she was still disapproving of the way they had arrived. It may have been two years, but Hermione is still Hermione, (laughs) right? She finds little, uh, I I almost think mothering ways. She's like Mrs. Weasley when Mrs. Weasley isn't there. And she's going to make sure that these boys know that they have done wrong. And she will continue to let them know that they've done wrong until she thinks they have been duly punished. Which is so funny because that's pretty typical, I think, with, we've, you know, I think we've probably all heard like boys marry women who are like their mothers. And so knowing then that Ron turns around and marries Hermione, it's like she's taken care of him his whole life. So he's got to find this person who is going to continue to take care of him. Yeah, I think with this, I mean, they, well, the, the Whomping Willow chapter, the end of that, uh, you know, they were kind of basking, I guess, in the short-lived glory of, you know, being rebellious. And uh, you actually see very quickly in the beginning of chapter six here that uh, those actions had consequences, I mean, all the way through from like tearing up the Whomping Willow and 
you get to see, you know, Professor Sprout had fresh cuts on her arm. Um, you know, there's the Howler and there's uh, 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 Arthur Weasley's um, work, you know, they're, mm. they're being checked out at work. I mean, so there was a lot of things that, you know, happened from that. And they, they realized that, you know, like this was actually not a very good idea. Yeah. yeah, that's that's really interesting that such what feels like a fantastical and comedic episode really is the impetus for a lot of the developing plot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels like and I think we'll see it in our discussion. Chapter six is almost on every page setting us up for later chapters. It's almost like, yeah, there's the story that's developing over these 10 or 15 pages, but there's all of these details and characters that are going to build into the way that the plot develops down the road. Uh, so it's just, it, it's, it continues to amaze me after all of these years, how with such economy of space and language, Rowling can be building all of these blocks into quite a sophisticated plot but it never feels like she's forcing us along that she's dragging us through um and not giving things the attention they deserve uh one of the other things that that does show up in this chapter that's a result of the whomping willow is harry's strained relationship with gilderoy lockhart yes right lockhart harry 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 clearly <laughs> i've given you the bug you know and so even this new twist in the relationship with Lockhart, which I think it begins in earlier chapters yeah. where Lockhart is trying to snuggle up with anybody who has fame and glory, uh, but it, it's just sort of grown. It's expanded in this chapter as a result of the Whomping Willow episode, which Lockhart perceives as Harry just trying to get another taste of the limelight. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, dear. Okay. Um, I just, as I was reading this the most recent time, it just, like, I've, I've grown so used to the film versions, even though I've read the books a lot of times, and I forget how frustrating Gilderoy is in the books because you get so much more of him talking and he talks <laughs> so much. And it just, like, you're here, you know, there, there won't even be dialogue for Harry. It'll just be like, and he spoke over Harry stammering, you know? <laughs> you don't even hear Harry trying to get a word in. It's just Gilderoy powering through. And he's such a frustrating character, but he's so well-written because, you know, it really does ring true as, as that type of person that just kind of barrels over and um, is just so enamored with his own voice and knows that he's right and just keeps going. Yeah, he has like zero self-awareness at all <laughs> yeah and he also he assumes that everyone else desires the things that he desires it's as if he assumes that if everybody looked in the mirror of era said they would see all of the things that he sees so he's always projecting his own psychology particularly onto harry um we may have gotten uh, a little bit ahead of ourselves although i just can we just say kenneth branagh in the movies is fantastic yeah. he is so yes. good as gilderoy lockhart he's such a brilliant actor uh, and to do such kind of a silly character but he does it so memorably crystal was there another uh, insight that you wanted to throw out 
Um, I was just going to uh, give a little bit of appreciation for J.K. Rowling's writings or writing style because I just love when the howler lands on the table. Harry mm. looks at it and says it, they were that Neville and Ron were looking at it like it was going to explode, which is exactly what it's going to do. But Harry doesn't know that. So that little detail about her writing, describing what Harry was seeing, I just thought was so brilliant. And it just struck me in a new way today when I was reading it. Yeah. I love the howler. I think it's so imaginative and it's one of those things like the flying Fort Aglia that after so many years of reading it, it feels commonplace, but trying to read it with fresh eyes, it's really, really clever that you could yell at your kid from miles and miles and miles away, very publicly shame them <laughs> through <laughs> this magical letter uh, it's just fantastic. I love that it's written in all caps and italics. And it's just, you can hear her voice just screaming so shrill. Yeah. After I read it, I even imagined like the movie, uh, Molly Weasley, like, like ra blowing a raspberry at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think it's just such an appropriate punishment for these guys because they wanted all this glory and fame for landing this car so you know spectacular I know they didn't really but that's what their anticipation was that they were gonna you know show up Fred and George and be so cool and then it was like you know they got all this this good attention and then their punishment really is like fitting up the crime which is something we've said about Molly in the past she's really good at actually punishing what is what needs to be punished but that it is a humiliating like blow to these guys who are you know were just told like cool and awesome by Dean and all the other Gryffindor boys to then be like just publicly shamed by your mother from like you said Vera miles away it was just so perfect it's a whole lot harder to be Fred and George than you know it actually looks like maybe from the outside oh, that's you true know? yeah um it's hard to be the rebels you know and play it walk that fine line um because you can see, like I mentioned before, there are real world consequences that happen from these actions. Oh yeah, and it killed me with the Mr. Weasley facing an inquiry at work. Every time I read it, I'm just like, oh, yeah. not, not the poor Weasley. Yeah. So that, that brings up a point that struck me as I was reading the all caps paragraphs of Molly Weasley <laughs> screaming, is that if you look at the things that she's actually angry about, they, they may not be what we would initially expect. It's not, you could have been killed. What were you thinking? That was so dangerous. Why would you put yourself in that position? It, it's all, they could have expelled you. What do you think your father and I went through? I thought your father would die of shame. We didn't bring you up to behave like this. Your father's facing an inquiry. It's entirely your fault. All of the reprimands and the shame has to do with what Ron's behavior is doing to them as parents. Mm. It's how Ron's actions are reflecting poorly on the family. So she is shaming Ron for the shame that he is bringing on them as parents and on their family name as a whole. I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, um, but... Well, I wonder to what degree that that may be because the physical stakes are lower. I mean, when when Harry falls 
and now I'm forgetting which book this is, uh, falls and breaks his arm and he needs to, is that, that's later in this book? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, he fell from what? I mean, we're talking 50, 60 feet onto bare earth. Are you talking about the bludger? Yeah, with the bludger. Okay, he didn't fall. He, the bludger broke his arm. I thought he, I thought then he fell to the ground. Maybe that was just in the movie. Anyway. Anyway, he ends up, you know, having to regrow bones because his bone bones get disappeared and it's not a big deal. Like you have to sit and, you know, in a sick bay for a couple of weeks and have them get regrown. You know, it's a... Uh, well, I, if you're around competent wizards when you get injured, then sure. But if these boys had just crashed the car in the middle of the countryside, or that would have been gotten, it. gotten smashed by the yeah. walking willow, you know, to pieces. I'm not yeah. sure if uh, Madame Pomfrey could have healed, I don't know, blunt force trauma. Pieces, yeah. <laughs> pieces of boys are hard to... <laughs> <laughs> i don't know nothing um, a little super glue can't fix right. spellotape spellotape uh, yeah i just i i look at family dynamics in the broader canon you know family name means a lot mm-hmm. and the weasleys have a less than illustrious reputation in a society that values heritage and family honor. I feel like Ron's sort of desire to, you know, when he looks in the mirror of Erised, to be uh, someone who receives glory and honor sort of fits into that trajectory. Uh, And I just wonder if if we're uh, getting a glimpse into the, like the deeper character of uh, not only uh, Molly Weasley's uh, motivations and priorities, but also the family dynamics of growing up with the pressures of the Weasley home, where it's not just your action, but how your action is um, uh, roping in and shedding light on others. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't... I hadn't noticed that her perspective was not about really physical harm to Harry or Ron. Although I will say when I read the line, I don't suppose you stopped to think what your father and I went through when we saw it was gone. In my head, I interpreted that like she panicked, worried about her children. Like, I I guess I just thought intuitively she knew they took the car. I'm sure she didn't, but that's in my head what I was thinking. Yeah, there's probably there's probably uh, charitable ways of reading it, um, which which is kind of the reason why I just sort of throw it out as an observation. Like it struck me afresh this time, like, huh? It seems like, at least taken in gross, Mrs. Weasley's more concerned about how the the actions are impacting them. than what the actions are actually mean about who Ron is, even at the level of character uh, and virtue and wisdom, uh, not just physical safety. Uh, One of the things that we do in this podcast is we get really dorky and we talk about the mechanics of the magical world. Mm -hmm. 
Alex has like the most famous line in the history of the Harry Potter book club talking about electric wires in New York City in the mid 1800s or something <laughs> yeah. like that. I don't even know. Uh, but the mechanics of mail delivery in the Great Hall mm. just are seem remarkably inefficient. They really are. Mm-hmm. A big lumpy package bounced off Neville's head. And a second later, something large and gray fell into Hermione's jug, spraying them all with milk and feathers. And I'm just picturing like a barrage of packages falling like, you know, London being bombed in World War II. <laughs> like hailstones, yeah. yeah. Horrible. Like landing in the bacon and in the gravy and in whatever, you know, these British kids are eating for breakfast in the Great Hall. And I, I just, I hope like none, nothing is fragile. I mean, I, oh, I see, guess they can I, repair when you're, but... when you're speaking about this now, I'm thinking like maybe in the magical world, they don't necessarily care as much because with the flick of a wand you can fix everything you know like it's not as big of a deal but I think yeah probably in the writing it was more of just a funny thing to put in that would be my guess for why she had it in there you know but so I I for one I think this uh the howler brings up an interesting set of problems for the school and the way that it facilitates communication between parents and kids because something that's going to be this disruptive this loud going to shake dust from the rafters how often can they allow this to happen i mean kids do stuff that their parents don't like all the time and if you just have howlers flying through multiple times a, a, a meal i mean this is a this is not a small school uh, there are probably some kids that get more than one howler a year. Uh, this we is know, we this, know Neville does. We know Neville does, right? So this is. Um, I, I just have to think that either like the kids are just so used to it, they're just like whatever, you know. I guess another one of these is happening again, or um, there's some kind of process that like they have to like get approval from the school. Like Dumbledore has to be like, hey this is what happened and like you're okay to send a <laughs> send a howler to these boys because like, is there a screening process right there's got to be something post? you know some kind of owl post or you know or maybe just maybe just the owls know like oh like we heard through the grapevine like this this kid really deserves it or you know oh we're just gonna not deliver this one today they've already had three or four you know that does bring up a good point though about like how has harry not found out what a howler is he's been there for a solid year and like with fred and george of all people mm-hmm. but but then it does kind of after the howler goes off it says a few people laughed and gradually a babble of talk broke out again so it is like kind of normal that's interesting that's a good point yeah the point about how does harry not know about how i mean that brings up something like we as readers have to continually be be discovering new things about the magical world which means that the character whose story arc we're following has to be able to discover new things but it's one of those things that you know you say okay how many months now have you been embedded deeply in a thickly magical culture inside the walls of hogwarts and yet you're still ignorant of what are, what are actually they they become very basic aspects of the magical universe so I I, I I can't put my finger on it but i feel like there might have been more than one of those 
in this chapter where there's a new discovery from Harry. And it's like, well, if you've read the books 15 times, you're like, okay, Harry, <laughs> you knew. <laughs> you're a slow like, <laughs> You had to know. Yeah. <laughs> it just never occurred to you to ask somebody what that exploding fireball of sound was just like oh. down the table from you? No? Okay. <laughs> we, we talked many moons ago uh, you know it was only a couple chapters in podcast time but for us it was it was probably over two years ago about gilderoy lockhart and his name gilderoy is coming uh with professor sprout uh towards the students as they prepare for double herbology with the hufflepuffs um and i was reminded of our discussions about the etymology of lockhart's name uh, and I wonder if, I think it's, it, it's helpful for me to think through it again. It may be helpful for our listeners as well. But I remember uh, one of you guys said uh, Gilderoy has this notion of being a gilded figure. He's, mm. he's gold-plated. He looks valuable on the outside, but that can be covering up anything on the inside. Also, uh, Roy... I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, in French, is king. So he's a gilded king, a gold-plated king, who obviously has a very high estimation of himself. Uh, I looked up the etymology of Lockhart as well, and according to uh, the Wizarding World website, Lockhart is a word of Scottish origin that connotes bravery. So he's a gilded king of bravery, which is really ironic because it's only gilded bravery, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's false bravado, as we'll come to find out. I also uh, think it's interesting that the idea of Lockhart, hearts lock onto him, as we see with Hermione, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also his heart is locked to others mm -hmm. in, in the sense that nobody actually knows his true desires because he's gilded. Uh, his true intentions are locked away inside, uh, hidden, and eventually... Uh, they will be exposed, but uh, they are not available for discovery for the average person uh, who who comes across him. So I, I don't know. I was getting deep in the weeds with Gilderoy Lockhart yeah. in this chapter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I I could not help but think when I think of hearts and uh, lion, or I thought I thought of the cowardly lion immediately when I thought of, when I thought of Gilderoy Lockhart for some reason the. Uh, and then I know he doesn't go the the cowardly lion does not get the heart the tin man gets the heart but still um, it's a it was immediate thought that I that came to mind was that image from um, from the Wizard of Oz where there's that plated heart and then the the lion that has no real courage just a lot of bravado and show. But there's actually another name that came up here that um, I wanted to talk about the etymology of also. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry we skipped past it, so I'm going back. But uh, Errol is a very interesting name. It's a very old name um, because it, it comes from the same root word as, as uh, like the old English term for, for king, like Earl. Earl, okay. Earl. The same, same thing, the idea of a of lordy lordliness and uh but very ancient 
um, warrior or nobleman, prince, that sort of idea uh, all wrapped up in there. Yeah, Errol. Um, so, so why do you think she chose that name for crappy old <laughs> owl that's barely able to do his job? Maybe she had a funny cat when she was growing up, you know, and just like thought, hey, this would be great to name that owl that. That's yeah. just Maybe. completely throwing that out there. Yeah. That's not, not really <laughs> at all. We're truly well, it, the, the owl is also very old. Yeah, so and maybe, so this maybe is a, in his prime, he was like a like a king bird. Well, I think right. it's just so the vibe of the Weasley family. I mean, uh, this is this is really interesting. But I mean, like when Ron gets his uh, dress robes, they are old. Mm, very old they fashion, are regal. Right? They are completely out of style. But there's this sense in which they they signal a kind of dignity within the Weasley family, but they're completely outdated. Mm -hmm. They've not been kept up and they're kind of to outside observers uh, to use Vera's very nicely chosen word, cruppy, you know, <laughs> but this, uh, this idea of regal dignified things, an owl named Errol, uh, dress robes that would have killed in the 1950s, uh, but that really aren't up to stuff snuff now uh that that sort of fits the vibe of a family who's trying to hang on to honor but doesn't have the resources to keep up with the joneses and the malfoys in the wizarding world mm, yeah so um back to gilderoy and the greenhouse yes and the greenhouses um as i as i was reading this it didn't really occur to me but the more we talk about him the more he strikes me as this really lonely figure because no one really knows him. He has no connections. And the only real adoration that he has is from his fans. And this is the first of, of many vignettes we're gonna see where he is latching onto a professor to, to basically tell them, oh, I have expertise in this department too. Mm -hmm. uh, and let me tell you a story about how I know more about it than you. And I really feel like he's trying to make friends. He's just so horrible at it because he can't stop bragging about himself even when it's not true. And, I, and it's just like, Professor Sprout is so frustrated by him. And it's just like, it's sad to me now because I can see it's like a cry for help a little bit. It's just, it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, to me, and I guess because I'm, we all know what happens, you know, I can't help. I mean, I really don't feel sorry for him because, like, it seems all he cares about is me. I mean, like, the bear is, is himself, you know, and he says that, you know, I don't want to skip ahead, but, like, in his, the very first words to his class when mm -hmm. speaking with him, his very first words are me, you know, and, like, We'll get into all of that, but I mean, he's just, he's trying to play this character that he has built up and, you know, it, it's what he's famous for. And he is just obviously not that he's gilded, like, yeah. like Trevor has pointed out. Well, Something I, we've, oh, go ahead, Crystal, sorry. Oh, sorry, um, I was just gonna say uh, in the ways that he talks to Harry, like one of the lines he says is, schoolmates won't think you're setting yourself up so much if, you know, you, surround yourself with other people or however he says it. I can't find the exact quote. And I thought he's thought so much about 
how to make himself likable that he's so fake he's actually unlikable because mm-hmm. there's no realness in him like the reason we identify with others is because we see flaws in them that kind of like mirror our own and we find solidarity in relationships but he has none of that because he is so fake and tries to be so perfect that nobody can actually know him and want to be his friend and he's unlikable for that reason it's repellent it's it's the paradox of beauty right um if you desperately need to receive the attention of others you'll actually become the kind of person that people do not want to attend to right but it's precisely the person who doesn't need uh to be glorified who doesn't need to be approved of or showered with praise or seen as beautiful that is beautiful and that people want to be around because they're a hospitable presence who who is it's it's as if they are a spacious enough person to make room for others those are the the truly glorious people that we want to be around um and gilderoy uh, i think exposes that paradox mm-hmm. um of of beauty and the pursuit of praise one of the things that we've often done in our conversations is been like okay this is funny also if you like peel back the layers something really problematic is going on here mm-hmm. yeah uh, this is one of those situations like gilderoy lockhart is i I'm, i think we can diagnose him with narcissistic personality disorder mm-hmm. and he may be a wizarding sociopath <laughs> i mean right like yeah. the inability to maintain real human relationships, the constant obsession with uh, his presentation and his perception by others. And then, you know, spoiler alert, um, his willingness to harm others in order to keep the, the facade alive. Yeah. He, he, he can come across, again, we're in book two. This is still very much a children's story and he can be a humorous villain for us but there's there's often in Rowling's humor as we've noted many times uh, something that's true to humanity and the dynamics of humanness uh, i think that paradox of beauty the paradox of neediness um is is one of those things that she she sheds a light on um but also like the really distorted parts of Gilderoy Lockhart's personality and character. Mm-hmm. I'll also just point out that he is literally, not just figuratively, gilded. Oh, he yeah. has oh, golden yeah. hair shining. His yeah. hat has gold trimming. Mm-hmm. And something I'm interested to look at uh, in subsequent chapters, but in this chapter, so many of the descriptions of, of him as he appears over and over are about his brightness, his uh his shining his white teeth gleaming his brilliant smile uh, there's also always a sort of reference in the descriptions to the way he gleams you know like gold um he's always shining in his presentation uh mm-hmm. and i think that fits the metaphorical uh gildedness of of his character as well And I notated that same section there with his uh, gold hair shining, because I thought it was interesting that it comes right off of us uh, hearing from Professor Sprout 
you know, that Gilderoy was trying to tell her how to doctor the Whomping Willow. And she comes in with the dirt under her fingernails. So she's done the actual work and his, his robes are literally, it says immaculate. So he's done absolutely nothing. And yet he comes and shows or tells the students, you know, I don't want you thinking, I know how to do this better than your herbology teacher. So I just thought that was almost like foreshadowing of all of his work. It's he says he's done all of these things or he knows about these things, but actually he's done nothing and other people have gotten their hands dirty and he's remained immaculate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't I didn't notice that, you know, there's this obvious sense that Sprout is exasperated when she comes in. And so you get that idea. But literally the descriptions of their clothing, I think you're exactly right, are a clue to who's actually doing the labor here. Uh, And that theme gets picked up even as the chapter goes on. Well, one thing I love, um, let me see if I can find the exact, oh, there it is. It says, Harry caught a whiff of damp earth and fertilizer mingling with the heavy perfume of some giant umbrella-sized flowers. I thought for some reason, I could like smell the earth when I read that. It's such a beautiful uh, description of it. And I thought, I bet you that when Neville smells Amortentia, the potion, the love potion, that is like a combination of the scents of things you love. I bet that that is what Neville smells. Oh, and it made me love <laughs> Neville so much. <laughs> but it evoked like the smell of, you know, like earth or soil mm-hmm. that you think of. And so I just thought, oh, I bet Neville when he smells Amortentia. Guys, I, I may be misremembering, but isn't does is there a scene in the movie if not the books that has neville say something like that no Mm-mm. no is the it only person Hermione yeah who has her very nerdy smells well, we get harry's description too but yeah yeah no i that's interesting because when you were describing that imaginary scene apparently uh it was like, I can I can absolutely see that like to the point where I was like no that that had to have been in the movie right <laughs> that's definitely what Neville's most sometimes I forget like what actually happened because I think so many things in my head about Harry Potter so I hear you <laughs> well that is a problem when you read or uh, listen to the audiobooks with the movies in your head yeah. I I will visual I will visualize scenes from the book. Or even like imaginary scenarios as my train of thought gets distracted uh, with the imagery and even the cinematography of the film. Yeah. And, you know, after, I mean, 20 years of this, it's like, we, we no longer know what's real and what we've yeah. made up. <laughs> so, um, Trevor, you made me think about this, this problem that we face with Gilroy Lockhart and the 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 problem of beauty that you were describing and it made me think then what are his fans sticking around for right if he if he was coming off the way he is in reality like he was to through in his books showering himself with praise constantly what would people find so attractive about that Okay. Well, people find Have so interesting. Been on Instagram and then, Instagram lately, Alex. Alex you well, there might be part of it. They're not meeting him in person and hanging out with him. You forget, person. Alex, that he was a five-time winner of the most charming smile in Witches Weekly. Okay, 
So, but, but he doesn't talk about that. Yeah, he <laughs> but we don't know. He doesn't he, talk about as that. he says. But Alex, I actually think that's a really good point, and I made a note about it because I thought this is kind of a social commentary on like the celebrity culture or even minor celebrity culture. It's it, it's so sh- the relationship with fans is so shallow, and they only see what he puts in front of them and they consume it because he's an attractive person that seems like he's done a lot of great things and I thought wow this is uh pretty much everybody I follow on Instagram I I mean it it was kind of a mirror into my own heart and the people that I follow and thinking like who knows like what people are really like underneath Mm -hmm. that's fascinating Gilderoy Lockhart as social media critique influencer prior to the advent of social media i mean because mm-hmm. yeah he he curates an image mm-hmm. like people do on facebook twitter and instagram but he does it the analog way mm-hmm. through books media appearances uh and schmoozing with fans and, and signing photographs um but that's that's a that's a really interesting idea that we all uh, have a much easier time and a much larger temptation to become Gilderoy Lockhart's in a world where we have complete control over what we show the wider world. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I loved uh, his. I mean, this is a little bit further on, but it, it's related to what we're talking about now. Where he said his ideal birthday wish was, uh, what was it? Or harmony between all magical and non-magical people or something and I thought that's basically the equivalent of world peace world peace <laughs> yeah. like a, a Miss Universe contest where again you're just judging from exterior appearances and what they're telling you and it was just more social commentary to me I just thought it was so funny <laughs> but I think that's a really good point Alex well, one other thought I had related to that we know that he and obviously you know we've We've spoiled so many things. So we know that one of the things he does is essentially take other wizard stories. Mm -hmm. And so I've wondered, perhaps that's why the fans love him. Because he's taken another wizard story and told it as his own. A person that actually has, you know, complexity and difficulty and maybe made mistakes and struggled through all kinds of things and then got through it and then he tells the happy story at the end and lives, you know, you know, happily ever after, so to speak, and on to the next adventure. And so the fans see them and think, wow, what a what the what an amazingly complex and you know deep thinking and you know uh, courageously acting person. Um, and so they can shake off when they see him in person, and he's not all that because they they think they know the real him because they've read everything in the books. And the people that only have met him in person don't see all those other things that that the people that have read the books think, you know. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree with that. But I mean, I still will point out, you know, and again, I know I said it jokingly at first, but he's the five-time winner of the most charming smile. I mean, like, I think we take for granted just how persuasive people can be when they're attractive so true I mean, oh that's i mean that's totally true being pretty then it's, changes it's easy to look at him you know it's made I, my life so much easier guys <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. 
Well, it's easy to look at him as as this wildly farcical character, you know, because that's that's how she persuades, or uh, that's how she writes him in in the, in the story. But still, it's, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's so much easier, I think, you know, to believe someone with a, a flashing smile, and you know, who's who's attractive. You know, and also, you know, this is another benefit of having Kenneth Branagh play this character because I'd, I'd like totally make sense you know totally makes sense he's incredibly handsome he makes you know wild statements about what he does and everybody believes him. of course you believe it it's kind of friend you know sure. so one thing that i thought was really crazy was that um there's there's sort of this um, moment where they're all kind of shocked that they're going to greenhouse three because they've always been at greenhouse one. Right. And, you know, I was like, well, maybe, you know, they're second years or whatever, but there's a lot of dangerous stuff in greenhouse three. And I think it's, it's basically a plot point, right? We've got to introduce the mandrakes because they're, mm -hmm. because we have to foreshadow the mandrakes and they are really dangerous because they could kill you. Yeah. And so why are we having second years repot them? Oh my because goodness. Harry needs to be introduced to them. That's exactly <laughs> that is right. That's the only reason and that I can come up with. Hermione. I, I would love to show you. Her... I... Oh, go ahead. The podcast obviously won't get to benefit from this a lot because it it's, has no visual. We're using component. it illustrated. But the illustrations of the mandrakes of the mandrakes in so this, this is are in just... the illustrated Sorcerer's Stone book, correct? Yeah. They're People. just amazing. Yeah. They, look, they look go so look at these good. Images. You can also they, Wikipedia wait, and get pretty they much. They look so good. Yeah. Yeah. Alex. They yeah, are terrifying. the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. Now, like, I can't look at these pictures too long or I will not sleep this evening. Yeah. <laughs> really creepy. I did actually check out and, you know, look up Mandrakes, I guess, in the same way that you checked out um, Gilderoy's name, Trevor. But you know, obviously a mandrake is a real root and it's, it's known, or I guess people uh, have, have, you know, pulled it up and it actually does look like a person. You know, there are pictures out there of like real mandrakes that look like a person. In folklore, um, they are tied to witchcraft. And in fact, there was one uh, reference, I guess, and I'm not sure exactly where it was, but in the past, they said that people who would uh, pull up these roots, you know, using their own hand, that they would actually, uh, they would die, they would hear the, the root scream, and then it would literally pull them into hell, like, yeah. Wow. And so they would actually, they would get animals, they would tie a rope to an animal, tie the rope to the mandrake, and have animals pull them out. Uh, so this is real world stuff, this is stuff that has happened, you know, and so she obviously took this folklore and you know put it in her book but i thought it was fascinating there's another very famous uh literary reference to the mandrake which comes from uh, machiavelli mm -hmm. one of um machiavelli's uh things that he wrote other than um you know famously the prince and things like that he wrote a book called the mandrake root which played off a stereotype back in medieval Italy where a mandrake was a uh, aphrodisiac. Um, and anyway, the story goes on about uh, essentially a 
it, it's meant to be a very humorous tale, but um, there's a lot of very subtle politics involved um, there where the man, um, and it's not really seems to have any inspiration whatsoever for J.K. Rowling, uh, but it is, it, that is the only other time I've seen Mandrake feature very, very strongly in any kind of literary work. You know what I think about when I think of the Mandrake? You never call me on my cell phone. Oh, <laughs> Moving on. No. Hermione, so you, you notice it, it is a plot point. And, and I, I do think that in this chapter, we are we are introduced to characters and items in the magical world that will be intensely important later on. The Mandrake is one of them. And it's introduced with Hermione doing her know-it-all uh, regurgitation of information like she swallowed the textbook. Yeah. Mandrake or Mandragora is a powerful restorative. It is used to return people who have been transfigured or cursed to their original state. Ding, ding, <laughs> you know. Yep. Uh, we are introduced to the curative before we're introduced to the problem but Rowling has just given us literally the textbook definition um, and what we'll be looking for as a cure uh, once the plot thickens. I'll also note that in the next sentence, excellent, 10 points to Gryffindor. The, the point yeah. system shift is yeah. thoroughly underway. Like they were crying about losing five points from Snape. Like Gryffindor house will never forgive me. I've lost five points. <laughs> Well, Hermione gets 30 points in this chapter just from answering questions in class, so. Yeah, let's not forget that they lost 10 points for fighting a troll, <laughs> or gained 10 points, rather. I, I think troll, definition of a mandrake, same level. <laughs> I mean, they were first years, so. Yeah. But I just, I can't get over, kind of like what Vera said, them letting second year spot these things, because I just think, I mean, doesn't Neville pass out in the movie? Or am I making In the movie, he does. He faints. He faints, yeah. They're like, oh no, he neglected his earmuffs, but he yeah, just and then passed. Professor Sprout just says, oh, just leave him there. He'll wake yeah. up. Yeah. It's a great yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's this whole section where she says, okay, four to a tray, work in groups, and you're going to work on your own. And then does not give any indication, okay, now we're all going to put on our earmuffs. There's not any of that moment. So like a group could have started early and everybody else would have passed out. It's such a dangerous lesson. I don't know. It really stresses me out as a teacher. But um, nine waivers to send their kids I to know. right? Yeah. Such a dangerous school. I, you know, the only reason I thought they went in Greenhouse 3 was I thought that Professor Sprout was just so just disgruntled with Gilderoy and she's just like, all right, we're going to, to three. I mean, that's kind of how she said it. I, maybe that was her lesson plan all along. I don't know. But I kind of got that sense that like, we're going to do something dangerous today. We've never been in, you know, you guys have never been in. She's feeling reckless. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stressed. So yeah. let's put some yeah, kids maybe, in Yeah, maybe Lockhart goaded her into it by saying that she didn't know how to take care of a whomping willow. So she was like, let's go show these second years some really dangerous. Yeah, that's kind of the job. sense that I got when I read that. Wow. It's funny that you read it in that tone. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm going backwards because I saw another thing about Gilderoy that I want to talk about. I'm sorry. Um, so I just, it struck me that when we first met him at Flourish and Blots, he's kind of using Harry to bol bolster his own fame. Like, oh, together you and I write the front page, you know, we're a big deal. 
Um, but now that they're both in the same space for a while, he's kind of trying to establish himself as the dominant celebrity and push Harry's fame down. And so he's like, you know, I know there was all that stuff with he who must not be named when you're a baby. And it's, you know, it's not quite as good as which weekly's most charming smile, but it's a start, Harry. It's a start. Like you're on your way, kid. And it's so frustrating. Like what is, what is that compared to what Harry did for the entire wizarding world? Yeah. it's nothing um but well, yeah he again just... to 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 take that maybe way too seriously it's because when you need the affection of everyone mm-hmm. uh, obsessively pathologically there is no such thing as a non-competitive relationship yeah mm-hmm. everyone is a person from whom you need respect and praise but they are also a threat because it's all a zero-sum game. And whatever attention they're sucking out of the room is attention that you can't br- bring into the black hole of your own soul. Uh, and so I, I, I absolutely think you're right. There, there's a, um, there's a comp- competition, a competitiveness, uh, an insecurity, and an anxiety that comes through in the ironically self-assured way, but it's all a facade, we know. Um, but it's underneath, it's an anxious presence that needs to put Harry in his place while also benefiting um, by proxy off of Harry's fame. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that Malfoy is paired with Gilderoy Lockhart in this chapter too, because Malfoy has a similar relationship with Harry in that he's incredibly jealous of all of the attention that Harry gets. He uses Gilderoy's calling out of Harry or putting attention on Harry to further humiliate Harry when he's already frustrated. That's that's interesting that they're paired side by side like that. You talking about Gilderoy in that way, Trevor, made me think of Malfoy too um, and his own insecurities with his father and wanting approval and all of these things. And he's just looking for it in a different way. Well, and Colin Creevy immediately names it. Yeah. You're jealous. Oh yeah, you're jealous. That's the first <laughs> thing that he says. But because it's Colin, who's kind of a sniveling, sycophantic character, again, we've seen this throughout. The Rowling is able to say profoundly true things in the mouths of people from whom we don't quite take them seriously. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a really interesting point about the juxtaposition in this chapter of Lockhart and Malfoy both are threatened by Harry, but they go about dealing with their anxieties in very different ways. One, by snuggling up and trying to steal the limelight from and with Harry, and one by trying to tear down. Yeah, and interestingly, Vera pointed out that uh, Gilderoy says something along the lines of like, oh, all that business with he who must not be named, you just did like nothing. And Malfoy even says, I don't think getting your head cut open makes you that special myself. You know, I don't want to, he even says like, I don't want a foul scar. So they even come at like what Harry did, which was a huge blessing to the wizarding world. And they both come at him and say that that wasn't really that big of a deal. Also, uh, we've talked about this before as well, but you've got, even their names rhyme, Gilderoy, Malfoy, Mm. Gilderoy, Gilded Wah is the, the Gilded King, Malfoy, Malfoy. That is a bad faith interlocutor. 
and even here, he he, he overhears something and he interprets it in bad faith. Yeah. Uh, in a way that is the most degrading interpretation of the dialogue. And isn't that often how Malfoy is introduced into chapters? Is he overhears something and he uses it as an opportunity to pounce? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he is a bad faith uh, engager of Harry. Well, we meet what? Justin Finch Fletchley. Justin yep. Finch Fletchley. Yeah, such a hard name. <laughs> it wasn't. I don't know if I've ever said it out loud until that very moment. Right. Not hard to I forgot it. how much of a blabbermouth he is. He talks so much yeah. because yeah. in the movie he has like two lines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he talks and talks and talks, and then they're like, "Great, we can put on our earmuffs and not listen to you anymore." <laughs> um, but yeah, he's kind of an interesting guy. And I also miss in the movies how they really don't do the like interclass, interhouse classes. Like we don't get to have herbology with the Hufflepuffs in the movies. They didn't really do that. And I like that. I like the intermingling of the houses. I think it's neat. Yeah. Justin says a lot of interesting things <laughs> as he's blabbing before the earmuffs go on. Uh, <laughs> first, we have an outsider's perspective of the, the trio of friends relationship. You're the famous Harry Potter. Hermione Granger, always topping everything. And Ron Weasley, wasn't that your flying car? Ron didn't <laughs> smile. <laughs> so, again humor but these are the relational dynamics that are going to grow up into something very toxic by the mm -hmm. time we get to the later books yeah. where harry's famous hermione's brilliant and ron is always overshadowed in his relationship with both that's what voldemort is going to say to him through the horcrux when he tries to kill the locket um, he's going to name this precise dynamic um, as something that strikes at the very core of Ron's internal insecurities. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Love it. Well, there's more in what Justin says. He, he associates Lockhart with bravery, which we've just seen as part of the etymology of the, the Scottish term. <laughs> that Lockhart something, isn't he? Awfully brave chap. So the irony is then verbalized for us. Um, and then Justin says enough to reveal that he is in fact a muggle-born wizard. Mm -hmm. Mother was slightly disappointed since he didn't go to Eton, but since I made her read Lockhart's books, I think she's begun to see how useful it'll be to have a fully trained wizard in the family. Um, this is this is important because it reveals that Justin is a muggle-born, but Justin is also going to be a target of the basilisk. Mm -hmm. So we've met the mandrakes, which will be the restorative for the basilisk. We've met Justin, established that he's a muggle-born, which uh, helps to justify his being targeted. Um, and he indeed will be a victim of the basilisk later on. So again, in, that's in the space of three pages. <laughs> we've got the future plot of the story being set up for us. I think this is, they don't go into it too much here, but I think it is an interesting thing to point out. This is a person bound for Eton, an incredibly expensive private school. I think they call them public schools in the UK, but they're not, they're actually, like we would consider them private schools, they're not actually government funded. Um, 
and and yet he's muggle-born right so he's arguably like in one sense when he comes into the wizarding world he's back on the on the bottom of the social hierarchy according to many in the wizarding world even though where he came from he'd be at the absolute pinnacle and i wonder if his ease in that his ease just walking up to harry potter famous you know wizard whatnot um is in part because like he did grow up privileged and he doesn't even really think of himself as not being privileged um or maybe it's because he's a hufflepuff <laughs> he's a friendly he's, guy or maybe he's, he's a friendly got, guy yeah. he's he's like flying completely oblivious to the rest of the world no that's interesting though that he may not have been in the wizarding world long enough and um what has been unspoken in the wizarding world hasn't yet reached the level of being said out loud the way it will in later books and so he doesn't quite realize the way that he might be seen by a certain portion of the wizarding population that's that's a that's really interesting but I like his juxtaposition next to Colin Creevy because Colin comes like this, like you said, kind of sniveling, like he idolizes Harry and Justin just comes right up and is like, hey, I'm, I'm Justin and all these things about my life. Uh, whereas Colin doesn't even offer any, he, he tells Harry his own, Harry's history, not his own, which is a really cool thing. I mean, it just shows, I think you're right, Alex, that he was, he's very privileged. He has a different background. Well, Colin, I mean, he comes off as a fanboy. He know? is, I mean, yeah, he's, just he's a fanboy. Completely, you know, starstruck. We get details though that reveal his blood status as well. Yes. Nobody, nobody ever comes out and says, "I'm Muggleborn." Yeah. But we see his. The first detail is that he's holding an ordinary Muggle camera, uh -huh. and so the the bells start going off. Um, and then he says, "I know all about you, Harry. Everybody's told me." Which means that until his peers told him about Harry Potter, he didn't know who Harry Potter was, mm -hmm. which means that he did not grow up in the wizarding world. And we later learn later in the dialogue that his dad was a milkman. And so all of these muggle-born details are being revealed. But yet again, the very next page, we've got another basilisk victim who is revealed to be a muggle-born. And so we've got all of these... Uh, these blood status details that are being introduced in chapter six of the book. And again, we've said this so many times, but how many times did we read through these books before it clicked? Like, no, JK Rowling is constantly telling us about people's blood status. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's constantly telling us about um, the, the wizarding uh, iteration of a racial hierarchy yeah uh in the details that she chooses to include and in the mechanisms that drive the plot forward well in between justin and colin we get this little episode in transfiguration class where we see how truly damaged ron's wand is after the whomping willow um, he had patched up his wand with some borrowed spellotape, but it seemed to be damaged beyond repair, crackling and sparking at odd moments. And then at one point it engulfs him in a thick gray smoke, which smelled <laughs> of rotten eggs. That's some really, the magic has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we learn later about wand lore and how incredibly intricate it is to construct a wand and how, you know, I, we don't really even hear of them being repaired. Like you break your wand, okay, let's get you a new wand. Yeah. And so 
Um, it's just that the fact that he thought he could tape it and it'd be fine and he could still do magic school is a testament to how terrified he is of his parents at this moment. Yeah, Harry holds out hope that Hermione will be able to repair his wand, that it isn't so badly broken later on that it can be repaired. And Hermione then, you know, with like tears in her eyes says, no, this is so bad, like it, it can't be undone. Yeah. Interestingly though, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, we're gonna get lots of like comedic outtakes and blooper footage of Ron with his broken wand. It's also establishing what will be their salvation exactly. from yeah. Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yet again, we've we've got thrown into the the very quickly moving action of of this chapter that doesn't feel like it's moving quickly at all. We've got yet another uh, item that's going to recur later on and be pivotal to uh, the way that these characters are able to come through unscathed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I even think he says stupid, useless thing, like hitting it against the desk. And I thought, I, we've kind of talked before, and this may be a stretch, but we've kind of talked before as the, as the castle as a character and this like sort of sovereign governance of magic. But I thought there's some sort of sovereign power working in the background here where this wand, like they flew the car, maybe it's Dobby. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. But there's some sort of sovereign power that is governing everything that's happening so much so that this wand is literally going to save their lives. And it's a good thing that Ron blew the car and is now terrified of his parents and won't write for a new wand because if it was fixed, if he got a new one right now, they would lose their memory and Lockhart would be the hero once again. Although Dumbledore probably wouldn't let that happen. Hmm. Yeah, we've talked in the past about how uh, there's like all of this serendipity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, at, a, at the level of literature, it's deus ex machina, uh, like this, all, all of a sudden the, the characters are in a perilous situation and then boom, like there's a magical coincidence um, or a turn of happenstance that ends up being their salvation. But it happens with such regularity in these stories that we, that's, that's what's instigated the comment about um, the castle being a potential character in the action, but also Dumbledore yeah. being the grand puppet master. Um, you know, uh, with uh, trials and tests you know, all along the way uh, in the first book. Yeah. Well, also, um, Dumbledore... That is perfectly uh, suited to each character. Yeah, I was going to say, Dumbledore did write Mrs. Uh, Weasley, Mrs. Weasley to send that howler. And Mrs. Weasley sent the And maybe howler. there's a screening process, and he said, yeah, send it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, but it's Mrs. Weasley's intimidation that is the reason why Ron will not... And, you know, it's like, is Dumbledore, like, really good at divination like better than trelawney yeah. at divination in order to know these things um it's but it, it is it's really interesting to see all of those happy coincidences that are constantly um converging to yeah. to help these characters succeed it, and it comes to the point where as a reader you're like either this is really cheap sort of literary tricks or the point is that there is a sort of underlying magical substructure 
that's moving things forward. Well, I, I love the, the detail about the camera mm -hmm. because the camera, just like the mandrakes will be salvation, the broken wand will be salvation. Yeah. The camera saves Colin Creevy's oh, yeah. life. Mm. Um, and you don't know it reading through the through it the first time, but uh, the camera will be the reason why uh, Creevy doesn't die because he does not look directly at the real basilisk, mm. which there's a detail on page 99 as Harry goes into Defense Against the Dark Arts that reminded me of this. It says, Harry get, is pinned to Gilderoy. He's just trying to get away from Lockhart. He can't get away fast enough. He gets to his desk and it says he busied himself with piling all seven of Lockhart's books in front of him so that he could avoid looking at the real thing. <laughs> Which I wrote in the margin, like the basilisk. You don't want to look at the real thing. As long as you see a, a copy or a reflection, a, a mediated image of the basilisk, you don't fall under its spell. And you've got Harry avoiding looking at the real Lockhart. And meanwhile, Hermione is like, it says that her attention is That's wrapped fantastic. and she Wait, so it's, on every so it's, word. So it's the opposite with him then. If you, if, you, if you actually look at the real Lockhart, you don't fall under a spell because he's so repulsive when you interact with him. But if you oh. go to the mediated image that he has created, you fall under his spell. Interesting. Gilderoy Lockhart as basilisk discuss no no i think i think uh or two is, different is, forms of basilisk right to, but, you know. so he is the ironic basilisk right yeah hermione does not see um him for who he is but in one sense she does she looks at him physically and she falls under his spell right i mean i i think it, it sounded to me like she had this positive impression of him through the books first that yes, and, she, and, I, and then I, only later was she, sorry no yeah, she, yeah. he vehemently denies like when ron is like he says he did she's like she she will defend him a little bit but there's a little when you know somebody's bad but you're trying to defend them there's that tone in her voice in all of the writing i think i'll, I'll find an example well i mean when you you know, write hearts in your syllabus or your yeah. you know, class schedule around defense against the dark arts teacher. You know, I mean, you, you're obviously going to have a skewed view. You're, you know, you're, you're going to explain away all kinds of different things. Yeah, like he, when they, he lets loose the pixies, Ron says, can you believe him? And she says, he was trying to give his hands-on experience. Yeah. She's, just, she's under right. his spell. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's a really, it, I think that's he's, really he is He's the beautiful basilisk. Ooh, yeah. uh, but Harry is is avoiding looking at him. But I think Alex, you're right. Like the the analogy breaks down because Harry's the only one who's actually seeing him for who he is right now. Right. Um, but he's seeing him for who he is because I think, in part, because he doesn't he doesn't believe the mediated image. Yes. Whereas yeah. the mediated I, I, image of Basilisk yeah, saves I think your life. There's a, there's enough here that we've you know very quickly pointed out that. I think I'm convinced that uh, that Rowling has written Lockhart as the beautiful monster, as the kind of foil to the basilisk. Yeah. 
if she didn't, she should claim that she did. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds really good, right? <laughs> Although I think a lot of times we give her way more credit than there actually is because we pick up on so many themes that it's like, well, she should pretend that this is what she yeah. meant by this. So, I mean, this this may make our diehard Harry Potter reading fans angry, but have you guys seen the meme on the internet that's like, nobody. And it's, it's silence. Yeah. Absolutely nobody. And J.K. Rowling. Here's a new thought that I had about the Harry Potter universe 20 years later. And then followed up with HBBC. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. yeah, I'm waiting for I'm just waiting for those releases because I love to hear what she's... Yeah, but sometimes, like, the, the point of the meme is that sometimes the thoughts that she shares about well, this is actually what was going on. Yeah. No, that is so completely off the wall and not relevant to what anybody was thinking about the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that it just right. feels like you're adding things on because you, you had an epiphany in the shower or something. And yeah. now this sounds good. I just thought the irony too of uh, Harry saying the last thing he needed for Lockhart to hear the phrase was a Harry Potter fan club. And I was like, how many Harry Potter fan clubs are there? I mean, we're one. But how many fan clubs mm. are there? There are TV shows and series and movies. And my goodness, oh, Harry, if only you knew. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do think it's interesting uh, in this. I mean, the entire chapter, you know, it is Gilderoy Lockhart. I mean, that's, that's the name of it. But, I mean, you're basically taking Gilderoy, and he appears throughout the whole chapter. And he's kind of compared and contrasted, I think, with a lot of characters in here. And we've already mentioned some of it but I mean in one way he's he's compared him both him and Harry are famous I mean but a huge difference is uh I mean Harry doesn't want this fame um and people are are giving it to him you know and and Lockhart craves this he needs it he's got to have it and has supposedly done all these amazing things and then you also see you know when you're talking about the professors you had you know, professors Sprout and McGonagall, they're actually teachers doing their jobs, you know, and then you've got him over here and, and his lesson plan goes wildly, you know, out of whack, you know, the pixies are, are everywhere. And one thing that kind of drew me with the professors uh, compare and contrast, I, I looked at Hermione, actually, and the way we, we brought up that she, her hand always shoots up you know, in class, and she answers the question, and, you know, oh, 10 points to Gryffindor, and all that, but when she's in the, the class with uh, Gilderoy, the, the time we get her raising her hand is, it says, Hermione raised a trembling hand, you know, and so, to me, you just feel like everything is just backwards in his class, obviously, than the way it should be, um, and, and Hermione was, was one just huge clue that it's re really easy to overlook. I mean, yeah. we, we know it, it's funny, it, you know, it's, he's obviously pointing toward himself, the entire class, but I mean, it was just uh, a compare and contrast the entire chapter of all these different characters in, in many different ways. Yeah. I, so I picked up on the line where he says, uh, when he's giving a list of his merits and he says, I didn't get rid of the abandoned banshee by smiling at her. And I thought, well, that's probably true, but you probably got credit for getting rid of the abandoned, abandoned banshee by smiling at someone because 
whoever he, whoever actually did get rid of the band and Banshee, he somehow charmed those people. And so his smile is in some ways like a weapon because he, mm. he portrays this character that, you know, you have to get close enough to someone to do some sort of memory spell, I'm guessing, uh, at least from what I know of memory spells. So he had to get close enough to this person and have some sort of relationship with them to some sort of trust to get the story to get the story right in a way that they, he could tell it so it was believable so he probably did actually use his smile as a weapon to claim that he got rid of the band and banshee plus all of these other things he says he did and i thought he is a very dangerous character because the way he can pretend to be something he's not is actually i mean he he's very he's portrayed as very unlikable but somehow he got close enough to seven or so different people to write all of these books to claim he did these things he didn't do. I also, yeah. also go ahead, Vera. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, like you said, Matt, that his lesson goes fully awry. And like, I can't imagine that this was his plan going into it. I feel like he got goaded by the boys who were like, well, they're not dangerous, these pixies. Like, are they? This yeah. is a stupid lesson. And he was like, okay. And then opens the cage. Like, was that your plan going in? Because he has no magical ability beyond later we learn he's really good at memory charms, right? And so, you know, and, and he does nothing. He, he, the pixies steal his wand and throw it out the window. And well, then he goes and hides in his office. If you read out loud, I don't know if you guys noticed, it just hit me as I read it again. The incantation that he uses, pesky, pixie, pester, no, me. Yeah. Pesky, pixie, pester, no, pester, me. Don't no pester me. me. Don't pester me. Yeah, don't pester me. Don't pester me. Don't pester me. And it's it's too fly, don't bother me and it's as like, an yeah, incantation. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's, it's a, it's bad grammar mashed together to sound like a Latin spell. Um, but it's completely worthless. And he just like, well, you guys clean up this mess. I'll see you later. And he's he's out the door. Didn't even Matt, give him like points or nothing. Yeah. Matt, you mentioned that reality sort of turned upside down in, yeah. um, in Lockhart's classroom. And it reminded me of like uh, mythical creatures. You know, we've just talked about um, Lockhart as a beautiful monster and a foil to the basilisk. And so I, I immediately looked up um, mythical creatures that kind of had the effect. Uh, interestingly, the first thing that came up on the search was um, a, a mythical creature called um, a vila, hmm. a woodland fairy or nymph. Men who gaze upon a vila fall instantly in love or at least in lust. So it's interesting that Lockhart is like a mythical creature to parallel the, the basilisk who kills you when you look at it. Uh, it's, it's as if Lockhart is feigning being a male vila. Um, when you look at him, you fall in love or at least in lust. A vila is a woodland fairy or nymph. And then he brings out pixies, fairy-like creatures into his classroom. Uh, you know, rolling when you dig in, she's got uh, a real good working knowledge of folklore, myth, um, and obviously in the in the etymology with the linguistics that she uses. But 
it's it's interesting. I wonder if she takes some of the cues for the juxtaposition with the basilisk from this sort of mythical framing of Lockhart's character. Yeah. Yeah. And the Vila that we meet in later books, or the half Vila, Fleur, is another one of those characters that's just a little too perfect to be likable. Mm-hmm. And so either the boys are obsessed with her because she is that beautiful facade, or like Hermione can't stand her, can't be around her. And as she gets kind of woven into the story later, she's still really hard to be around, even as she becomes a little bit more relatable. My, how the turntables. <laughs> I mean, it really is. You know, the, the scenario with Floor is just the, it's the switcheroo scenario of what's going on with the females and, and Lockhart. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just sort of pictured um, when we, when we first go to the Defense Against the Dark Arts class, Lockhart is so focused on his own quiz, his about me, that I just kind of thought he put so much so much thought into talking about himself that he had no idea what he was going to show these students or, and because he knows he has no talent outside of stealing people's ideas and intellectual property, he thought, these look harmless. I'll just, I'll just show them this because really all I'm going to do is talk about myself anyway. So I'll show them these harmless little pixies. I'll be able to figure that out in no time. So he had way more confidence than he was actually capable of performing. So I just think that possibly that's what happened is he thought, I'm not going to practice. I'll just show up, talk about myself. If there's time, I'll show them the pixies <laughs> and figure that out when it happens. But then he plays up the pixies so dramatically. Mm-hmm. I must ask you not to scream said Lockhart mm-hmm. in a low voice. It might provoke them. And then it's like, freshly caught Cornish pixies. <laughs> and I was like, that is like me as a dad trying to impress my children <laughs> when I think that they don't know what I'm talking about. And then they look at me and they're like, dad, that was not nearly as impressive as you tried to make it look. And I was like, well, I was depending on your ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> how trivial my talent was. I thought it was, I thought I was going to be able to fool you and impress you. I feel like that's what, what Lugard is doing here. And it just, it's like, wah, wah. and mm. the students, you know, it says they can't even muffle their, their laughs. And even Lockhart recognizes that that was not a scream. Did anybody else, when he was introducing himself, find his accolades kind of funny? I mean, it's, you know, at first he says me, but he says Gilderoy Lockhart, Order of Merlin, third, third class. class. Third class. Not first class. And, and again, for someone who has done all that he is said to have done, you would think he would be a little higher up. And then he's not even a member of the Dark Force Defense League. He's an honorary member. Honorary member. But maybe because he's famous, it's like, yeah, we'll include you, but you're not really a member. So you can already tell that, like, there are people out there that know He's not up to snuff, yeah. um, and it, it's right. just told right here. And, and I mean, and that no one questions that, like, oh, you're you're not a first class member of Merlin, no. Um, well, it's and, interesting because what, what do the accolades immediately remind you of? Like, oh, Dumbledore. Yeah, Dumbledore. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. constant. Like, but Dumbledore's not the one who throws out his accolades. He never. Does. We're always yeah. we always get the accolades from somewhere else. So Dumbledore's the one who is you know, it has all of the highest honors in the wizarding world 
he never throws them out. He doesn't depend on them. He's, he's a meek um, man of glory. And uh, Lockhart has all of these like second class, third class honors, but he has to constantly be naming them and broadcasting them because he's empty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, I thought it the inter- I thought it was interesting that he started the class with a quiz about himself because I actually remember when I was in the sixth grade, my sixth grade social studies teacher started the class the first day we met him with a quiz about himself. But it was like a little 10 question quiz about getting to know him. And it was really, um, it, it humanized him for me because you know your teachers are like people you kind of look up to and respect. And it's where Lockhart is literally just trying to like give a list of his accolades and the things he thinks are really cool. And he wants to just talk about himself, which is his favorite subject. And I, I thought, this is really harmful for these students to hear this. But when I experienced it with my sixth grade teacher, I thought it was a really cool, a really cool exercise. I don't know. But I did think it was funny that I had a teacher that did exactly this thing. Yeah, I thought in some of his questions, you know, you there's obviously a correct answer because he lists them in the book. But I loved question three when he asked, what, in your opinion, is Gilderoy Lockhart's greatest achievement to date? And I think that's one of those things that we've been talking about. He just wants people to tell him how great he is. Like, he needs that. And that was part of the quiz. Um, you can imagine him sitting up at night in his Hogwarts mm-hmm. room reading the answers to question three, yes. like a Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. I've already called him a magical psychopath. Yeah. Like I, I think he like feeding sociopath. Like, literally sociopath. kind of feeding sociopath, you're right. Uh feeding off of um the praise. Mm-hmm. But again, to give it the social commentary it deserves, thinking of him as a wizarding celebrity, it's like reading your social media comments if you're you know, a if you're an influencer, even if you're not, if you're just a normal person, you know, we sit and we read those comments and we want to respond to them. And if, you know, what, like Harry doesn't, Harry and Ron didn't read these books. So they don't know any of his achievements other than what he stated to them. So imagine how uh, his entire self-esteem and ego and everything rests on what these people think about him. So if they don't know, they're like, "Uh, you got rid of the band and banshee. And Hermione's probably like pouring out answers, but some people don't even know anything he did. So how his, I'm looking for everything, all that he is relies on what everybody thinks about him. So reading these could just plummet him into despair or boost him up and how miserable of an existence that must be. So Cornish Pixies, I, um, at first, when I was reading this again, uh, my thought went to another one of my favorite novels, uh, which is We Free Men, We as in Small, uh, by um, Terry Pratchett. Um, and there, the picked seas are also small, eight-inch blue men. Of course, they wear kilts and speak in very thick Scottish accents throughout the entire novel, like written in, you know, in, in brogue, in dialect. In yeah. dialect. Um, these ones do not, but I've, I've realized that We Free Men was published in 2003 and 
Chamber of Secrets came out in 1998 and it's first published. So Terry Pratchett might have gotten the idea from J.K. Rowling um, and just sort of because this Cornish, Scottish, you know, tiny blue men, you can see in this depiction, they're, they clearly have some kind of fuzz around their midsection, but they don't really appear clothed. But it just seems like there's, there's got to be something there where you're like, okay, you know, it's Celtic, they're tiny, they're blue. Let's go with this. <laughs> By the time Lockhart uh, runs out of the classroom, um, we've already alluded to the, the way the chapter ends with Ron and Harry, you know, being flabbergasted by uh, Lockhart's incompetence and Hermione coming to his defense. Uh, my, my thought was, we've already got enough details about Lockhart that even on your first read through the book, you are suspicious of this man. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you, you're primed by the way that he comes off, his dialogue, his narcissism. It's obvious. R Rowling isn't hiding this from us as readers. But m my sense is that at the beginning, he comes off not as a dangerous narcissist, mm -hmm. but as a buffoon. Yeah. Mm. He, he's, he's a non-self-aware buffoon. He's not a wicked villain. But we're going to see that beneath the gilded layer, and, and part of the gildedness is the sort of buffoonish charm, um, that there is, there is a, an intense, harmful, predatory wickedness. If the basilisk is a predator in the hidden parts of the school, Gilderoy Lockhart is a predator who is walking in broad daylight. Uh, and he... He will feed, uh, the basilisk doesn't eat people, but we've, we've used the language of feeding already. Uh, Lockhart feeds mm -hmm. on the students of Hogwarts. Um, and it's interesting, as we've sort of tugged on this thread, we see that both of them are harmful creatures that are lurking uh, in this second year in the castle. And I like that Ron, Ron is the one, again, we get this moment of JK Rowling saying things that we should take, you know, with as truth from people that we don't take seriously. Ron says the very last sentence of this chapter, her, well, Hermione says, you've read his books, look at all those amazing things he's done. And Ron says, he says he's done. And he's grumpy and he's annoyed with the pixies and we don't take it for serious. You know, we think, oh, okay, yeah, he's a blowhard. Lockhart is, we get that, but we don't really think that he lied about everything in his books. Yeah, yeah. Not, but not only is Ron, I think you're absolutely right that we, we don't take Ron seriously, not only because he's frustrated about the Pixies, but because earlier in this chapter, he's, he's already, he's been knocked down the totem pole, right? Aries the famous one, Hermione's the smart one. Ron, you, you broke the car. And so the idea that he would be jaded and frustrated by somebody else getting honor from Hermione, you you can read it as sour grapes. Uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. Like he's naming it. He's, he's, he's telling us what we ought to be suspicious of in a way that's more real and more accurate uh, than 
uh, even a suspicious reader is liable to believe. Mm -hmm. right. uh, yeah, I think that's right. Trevor, I just want to really quick highlight that you had mentioned something about uh, Lockhart feeding on people. And I just thought I, it just hit me that three different times Hermione is reading Voyages with Vampires. And so this whole chapter is almost like we're going on a voyage with this vampire Gilderoy Lockhart, like Ooh. on page 88, 96, and 97. And there are probably more, but that book is specifically mentioned. And so I just think that that might have been intentional, that it's, an, again, it's a um, assigning to Lockhart what he is. And it's another clue about who he is, that this is the book that Hermione is specifically noted that she's reading. And how do vampires keep on feeding. They don't kill their victims. They have to keep them alive. Yes. Right. The basilisk kills, but Gilderoy preys on the living. Mm -hmm. He has to keep them alive in order to keep sucking the life out of them. And isn't the that, first time that Harry wow. hears the basilisk right outside Lockhart's office when he's serving his detention? Yes. Yes. The plot sure. thickens. Dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but this conversation has been phenomenally enlightening for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talking with my best good Harry Potter buddies for the first time in two years has sparked new ideas and, and caused us to pull on threads that, uh, again, if you're a listener to this podcast, you know that between us, we can't count the number of times that we have read through this series of books, and yet they always surprise us. Mm -hmm. There's always something more when you keep on turning over narrative rocks and digging into these characters. That's part of the reason we do this podcast. Uh, it's, it's part of the reason we continue to love uh, these books after all these years. We're so glad to be back together and to be with you talking about these books. We hope that you will get in touch through our Twitter, Instagram, or email accounts. We would love to hear from you and you have our commitment. We solemnly swear that we are up to no good <laughs> and that we will continue uh, to uh, create a rhythm of, of podcasting more regularly so that we can keep on uh, having the joy of moving through these books together. So with that, mischief, mischief managed. managed. Okay, I think the Zoom thing sort of messed up the <laughs> synchronization, but you got it right. Oh, yeah. All right, we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.